Well, well, good morning to you guys. I, I trust that um, all of you have engorged yourself with delicious food uh, over the past several days. If you are like me, um, you love Thanksgiving because uh, Thanksgiving uh, lingers. You know what I mean? Christmas, you kind of celebrate, you open the gifts, and then things just kind of die away after that 30-minute window of gifts being open. But Thanksgiving, on the other hand, uh, it lingers, and I absolutely uh, love the fact that it does. And, and uh, it is my contention that Thanksgiving is the best holiday uh, on the calendar. I love Easter. I love Christmas. I love what they represent theologically, but I love Thanksgiving. It is the only day of the year where Christians can redeem a vice by overwhelming it with virtue. We can redeem a vice, gluttony, and we overwhelm it with virtues of fellowship and gratitude. Uh, in other words, it's the one day a year you can eat till your pants don't fit and not worry about it because you're loving people and you're loving God while you're doing it, right? So, so all the more to it, right? Um, you know, I, I, I recently came across an article on um, a, an online source called The Atlantic uh, called Gratitude Without God, uh, written by a secular, um, um, uh, what do you call people who write articles, um, a ju- uh, journalist. And uh, um, she wrote, gratitude isn't just an emotion, it's also a value. In most cultures, but especially in America around Thanksgiving time, being grateful is seen as a virtue. The entire country stops working and gathers together because being thankful is something we should do. But why, really? You can thank your grandma for making delicious pie, but who do you thank for for the circumstances of your life? It's an interesting article where a secular journalist is in wait to it. Uh, she, she looks to evolution, winds up saying, uh, speaking to a, a um, uh, naturalist biologist who says that the idea of Thanksgiving is this thing that we develop as human beings as an evolutionary thing to help us preserve the race. And, and being thankful kind of builds this idea of camaraderie and so clans, you know, all, all this type of nonsense. But it's just interesting watching people try and engage with these metaphysical truths, with, with, with these important things, and they get so very close to identifying something that we as Christians know to be true. That thanksgiving without a person to give thanks to makes absolutely no sense. Um, and in the spirit of thanksgiving, um, I wanted us to look at a passage of Scripture in the book of Hebrews that will propel us into giving thanks to our great God. We as believers do not give thanks for what we have. We as believers do not give thanks for what we have in some detached, abstract way. We give thanks to the giver of all things. And so as I, as I um, you know, passed out in a, in a uh, turkey-induced coma this Thursday and then I w- woke up at some time, unfortunately woke up to watch the Saints game, um, Thinking about today, I'm like, how, how could I serve you guys? Where, where Our minds are around Thanksgiving. I, I wanted to give you tools. I wanted to give you from Scripture specific instances from this book uh, uh, of Hebrews of things we can and ought to be thankful for. And um, you, you, you'll see how those spell themselves out. The passage we're, we're looking at this morning is Hebrews chapters 4. Let's read that together. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, and then we will pray. The author of the book of Hebrews writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you do what you have promised to do and what we believe you to be holy and righteous in doing, Father? Would you make sure that your word does not return void? Would you, O Lord, make sure that your word accomplishes its purposes? Would you, O Lord, use me to speak, Father? Help me, help us, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, there are at least three things we can be thankful for. Three things that in the spirit of Thanksgiving, this is Thanksgiving week, and um, um, what could you be thankful for? This passage leads us to three things. Uh, The Son of God is our great high priest. The second thing would be Jesus knows us well and is sympathetic towards us. And three, we have access to the throne of grace as a guaranteed promise. Let's look at that first one. The Son of God is our high priest. Look back at verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We we tend to think uh, that the ideas of gratitude and thankfulness, um, if if you're honest with me, you, you, you subconsciously tend to undervalue them. You underestimate them. Uh, You tend to put them in the category of Hallmark cards. Uh, The idea of thankfulness and thanksgiving and and being gracious are good things. But if you you look at your evaluation of of virtues and stuff, they're probably not as weighty. Or or at the very least, they don't say a whole lot. It's good to be gracious. It's good to be someone who gives thanks to God. It's good to be someone who shows gratitude, but not doing those things. Let's just face it. It's not that bad. I mean, you prefer to be around someone who's, who has gratitude, who gives thanks, but, but if they don't, you know, they just have bad manners. They're they're just someone who maybe wasn't raised right. Maybe, maybe they've had a difficult life. So we, we tend to think that lack of thanksgiving doesn't say much about people and that being thankful maybe says too little. That tends to be how we view, or maybe how I have viewed, these two ideas. But it's interesting that in Scripture, in the Bible, being thankful or the lack of being thankful are key characteristics to, be, to describe two sets of people. The righteous and the unrighteous. When the New Testament describes a person who is unrighteous, a person who stands under the wrath and judgment of God, who rejects God, who sees God, rebels against him, and says, I want nothing to do with you. It's interesting that scripture uses the language of that person lacks thanksgiving to God. A key characteristic, a key makeup of an individual who disengages purposely with God is lack of thanksgiving. On the other hand, a key characteristic of one who has opened themselves up to God, to receive from God, to walk with God, to to align their life with the purposes of God, is one who is characterized by giving thanks. So so this is a lot more than a thanksgiving than, than, than a hallmark type of presentation. In the scripture, thanksgiving to God is really r- rich and meaningful. 
uh, Romans 1 gives us the unrighteous uh, characteristics of a person who rejects God and is unthankful. Romans 1 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that, they, that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now listen to this. For, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. In one of the crucial passages in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul describes the condition of people who intentionally and, and willfully reject and rebel against God, they are described by doing two things. One, they look to God and they don't honor him for who he is. And two, they do not give God thanks. So Christian, pay attention. How often do you give God thanks? How often is the language of thanksgiving in your heart being raised to the Lord? Now, look at some passages in Colossians, another, Paul, uh, another letter that the same apostle would write. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Paul would say, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Later on, he says, And let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So in the Bible, thankfulness is used to describe both the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous live out their unrighteousness by not giving thanks to God. While the righteous live out their lives of righteousness by being thankful to God. In other words, those who have come to reject God descend deeper in their rejection of God by the very unthankfulness that their lives are characterized by. Those who have come to receive Christ walk and demonstrate lives filled with intentional and specific thankfulness to this God they have come to know. Now, what does this have to do with the Hebrews passage we just read? We're in Hebrews 4. We're not in Colossians. Well, the answer to that is everything. Again, look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, since that... Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. That's Bible language. What does that mean? I'm a very simple-minded person. I need things explained to like lower things down to me, right? Let us hold fast our confession simply means hold on firmly to what you believe. Hold on firmly to what you believe. Appreciate it. Value it. Cherish it. How do you do that? By being thankful. For it. And, and what exactly is this confession? What is exactly this set of beliefs that we have come to hold on to? Well, the verse tells us we believe we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. 
Jesus, the Son of God. So hold fast to that confession. Hold on firmly to the fact that you have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. My parents just got back from a, um, a trip to Turkey and Greece. My parents are in the season of life where they have three grown kids. Uh, we're all married. We all have uh, ch- children of, their, uh, of our own. Uh, we, uh, my younger brother and I live, and I wasn't born here. I was born in another country. And so we live here, not in Honduras where I'm from. My older brother lives over there. But m- m- mom and dad have two things in their early 60s uh, that they don't know quite what to do with. They have time and they have money. And so it's been a joy watching them reignite their marriage. And for the past three, four, five years, they've traveled the world. I mean, they've gone to uh, Japan. They've gone to Israel. They've gone to, uh, they're going to Norway in, in three months. Uh, and they've gone to Greece, Spain, all over the world. And, and it's hilarious watching, you know, engaging with them. As every time they're going to go, they say, hey, Ronald, we're going to, I don't know, wherever. You want to come with us? And I'll be like, uh, of course I want to come with you. Uh, there's no question I want to come with you, but I've got this thing called a job that I can't just kind of abandon and go have fun with you guys for a month. But uh, recently, as we were having this conversation around the Thanksgiving table, um, we were talking about what they'd seen in their travels. My mom and dad are Christians. They're devout believers. They've been for um, a long time. My mom led me and my brothers to Christ. My mom led me, my brothers, and my dad to Christ. Uh, in that order, uh, and uh, just a faithful, faithful, godly woman. So as she has seen the world, as she has gone to Japan and seen, you know, uh, rituals, as she, she got back from Turkey and she's seen, you know, devout religious people go about pursuing their, their, their particular flavor of, of religion, we got into talking. And she just describes the types of things she has seen, the, the, the different faiths exercising their faith with earnest devotion and intense commitment. It's, it struck her that the different civilizations, the different parts of the world that she's been to, here are different peoples worshiping different gods in the same way. That they're all characterized by, by this earnest, sincere, strong, eager, uh, 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 you know, sold-out type of presentation. These are not superficial worshipers. What they may worship as Christians, we would believe that they, don't, they worship superficial gods, but, but their earnestness, their devotion, their commitment to the ideas that they believe are true are, it is deep. And so listening to my parents describe both, both the admiral sense, the, 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 the thing we as Christians can learn from that, that we are maybe too wishy-washy with our devotion, but then the, 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 the sadness that comes about when we recognize what it exactly it is we're that they are doing. But in our conversations, we started asking the question, why do they do this? Why, why are devout Muslims devout? Why are devout pagans in Japan devout? Why are devout Jews, devout Catholics, devout fill in the blank? Why are people who practice their faith in such earnest and intentional and intense ways devout? If you answer the question because they know how bad they are, because they know how sinful they are, because they know how much they fall short of their standard of religion, you are partly right. But that is actually not the key influence in people's hearts. The reason they are so intentional, so devout, so given to 
do ritual after ritual after ritual, take pilgrimage after pilgrimage after pilgrimage, is not just because they see how bad they are. It's because they recognize how good they are not. They see in themselves, I don't stack up. I am not good enough to deserve whatever my God has promised me. I have not built up enough spiritual goodness to qualify me, to, to, to make myself acceptable. I need to go about more ritual and more ritual and more ritual and more ritual. I need to give myself over to make myself good. And so you see this. My parents were, were d- 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 describing um, rituals of people bathing in rivers of just basically sewage water. Millions of gods in the pantheon of gods in Japan. And the earnestness that people pursue these things. What this passage says is something so profound, we read past it. We have a great high priest. It doesn't say we may have or we will have. It says we have a great high priest who has passed through the very heavens. Jesus the Son of God. The author of the book of Hebrews is is reminding us that we have a faith that teaches us that a perfect one, the very Son of God, did not walk into a good temple or the best temple or all the temples made by by man-made hands. He walked into heaven itself and proclaimed the name of every person who's in here who has faith in Christ. He has perfectly and forever done what you and I will never do in this world to make ourselves good enough. So as Christians, we don't need to externally do what these folks do because there is one who has done it on our behalf. He hasn't done it in a river. He hasn't done it in a church. He hasn't done it in Mecca. He hasn't done it in a temple. He didn't go into some weird mountain. He didn't go into the jungle. He went into heaven itself, into the very presence of God Almighty, and said, I have died for those. I am the high priest. I represent these people. I have offered myself as the perfect sacrifice, and I am welcomed into heaven because I am God God, uh, as well. We have a great high priest. In the midst of difficulty, distress, disappointment, and death, the serious amounts of pain and disillusionment and frustration and evil and bitterness that this fallen world brings us. There's a lot that this world brings us that we maybe should not be thankful for. But we have a great reason to be thankful for. The Son of God himself has walked through the heavens with your name in his lips. Second thing we ought to be thankful for from this passage is that Jesus knows as well and is sympathetic towards us. Look at verse 15 of Hebrews 4. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's simply astounding and glorious that Jesus is 
our high priest. That fact alone, that fact alone is astounding. That the Son of God looks upon a sinful people and doesn't recoil. That the Son of God does not look upon sinful people and is not turned off or embarrassed. That the Son of God assumes the role of high priest and says, I will make those dirty people clean. I will make those evil people good. I will purify that which has been defiled. That alone is enough to be thankful for. But it gets better. This verse says, we have a priest who is, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. This verse introduces us to something deeper and more glorious. And that is that Jesus, as our high priest, sympathizes with us. In his fantastic book, Gentle and Lonely, Dane Ortland. If you've not read that book, let me encourage you to read that book. Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lonely. Unbelievable study about Christ and his heart for us. But Dane, a theologian, Dane Ortland, helps us understand what this verse means. He writes, the word sympathize here is a compound word formed from the prefix to mean with, like our English prefix co, joining with the verb to suffer. Sympathize here is not cool and detached pity. It is a depth of felt solidarity, such as is echoed in our own lives, most closely only as parents to children. Indeed, it is deeper even than that. In our pain, Jesus is pain. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our Distress. We have a 14-year-old miniature schnauzer. Um, one of the, one of the, I told you, I'm, I'm from a different country, and, and um, people have asked me, you know, uh, um, cultural uh, assimilation, was that hard? And I said, no, not really. Um, uh, there were certain odd things that took me a while to understand why Americans did. And so the whole dog years thing, like, I never got that. It's like, well, the dog is 14 years, but in human years, it's 37. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? What? Like, how old is a dog? The dog is 14 years. Okay, but what is this concept about human years? It's like, no, well, in dog years, I'm confused already. So our dog is 14 years old. And, and miniature schnauzers, they live to about 12 to 14 years old. So, so I don't need human years to tell you that our, our dog is dying, right? Uh, Bella has been a good dog. Uh, she's seen all our kids be born. Uh, she's been a great dog uh, for our children. She's loved on them. Uh, now, she is a miniature schnauzer, and if you have a small dog in your home, you know that they're annoying, they're loud, uh, they just won't shut up, and it's just it's like, be quiet, please! Um, but she has been an unbelievably faithful and good and loving dog. And, and it's it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to... to ha- I, I, we brought her from Honduras as a puppy, we brought her through customs, and it, it, it was funny watching the, the, the uh, agent there. Um, he thought she was a, um, a stuffed animal because she was so little. And, uh, and no, this is like a, 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 a real dog. Having her grow up, and, you know, she, she's not the same Bella. Uh, she has arthritis. She can't move. And we, we, we see her pain. And, um, and you know, we, we, feel, we feel pity for her. What Jesus feels for us is not that. What Jesus feels for us is deeper than that. 
Last year, my 10-year-old daughter had to have mouth surgery. Um, my sweet little girl, um, unfortunately, she looks like me. Uh, unfortunately, she has got this face. Uh, and my weird curly hair and, and my teeth. I wore braces. She's wearing braces. And, and so she's had to have mouth surgery. She had her teeth, half of her top teeth come in one way. The other half came this way. So she had to have some mouth surgery that I went through as a kid. And um, I know her pain because I felt her pain. And um, I know um, every step of the process. I've sympathized with her in really unique ways. Um, before the surgery, um, I remember before the surgery, the anxiety, the fear. Um, I've walked with her through that. I know what her heart is feeling. I know what her mind, the, the, the horrible horrors that her mind is inventing. Is she, she, what is it going to be like? I'm going to have medals. It's, it's going to be okay. So the, 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 before the surgery, during the surgery, the actual pain, the overwhelming sense of, I mean, let's face it, if there's any dentists here, people that do that, I, I love you guys, but I don't like what you do. It hurts, right? If you've been to the dentist, it, it's just one of the most, uh, just in, uh, it, it's torture. It literally is torture. Um, I, I sat next to her while she's getting operated on. Uh, I'm holding her hand. I'm feeling, I'm feeling every, every, in, intense moment of pain that her body just responds. She's squeezing my hand. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with her. I was there with her when she was getting surgery. And then, and then after the surgery, the, the weakness, the, the, the discomfort, you're, you're high on, you don't know how many things, you're drooling, you've got stuff coming out of your mouth, you can't eat. I sympathize with my daughter. I have felt her pain. But even that is not what this passage is talking about. That's closer the way Jesus sympathizes with us is more full and more deep and more precious than even what we may go with. We may go through with someone who we love. The verse says, one who in every respect, the totality of it, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, maybe, maybe you've asked yourself the question, Maybe you, you, if there's, you know, uh, uh, Saturday morning theology breakfasts and, and you've, you've come across this passage and maybe you've had the thought, how can Jesus really understand me if he never sinned? Like, isn't he limited in some way? Because he didn't sin, right? So if I've sinned and I know the pain of sin and the struggle of sin and the intensity of sin and the, and the, the post sin, Jesus didn't feel that. So is, is this verse actually saying that Jesus is not really dependable because he didn't really suffer as much as I did because he didn't really endure as much as I did. Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever had those questions? Um, I have. Um, and, um, and, and, and um, I'm so glad I found C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis helps us understand this. When he speaks of, he, he uses the analogy of a man walking against the wind. So picture a man in your mind walking against, you know, Hurricane Ida winds. Once that, that, those winds get stronger... The more he walks, the more he feels the onslaught of those winds attacking him. That man at some point 
lies down and gives in. So that's when we give in to our temptation. What that does for us is it prevents us from knowing just how strong the wind would be in 10 minutes. What that does for us is it it removes our awareness of feeling 10 minutes after we gave in. We felt the intensity of the wind up to a certain point. We don't know how much more intense the wind would be in 10 minutes. Jesus, on the other hand, never lay down. Jesus lived a life feeling the force of the wind of temptation. And he never lay down. He walked past your 10-minute marker. So he actually knows just how intense the wind is because he's experienced all of it. So the fact that you and I have sinned, we have demonstrated our limitation. We can only take so much of the brunt of weakness and temptation. Jesus, on the other hand, took it all. He took it all. He knows just how difficult the pressures and the burden of life can be. And the most amazing thing is that he does not use that knowledge against us. Think about it. He doesn't say, you miserable weaklings, you snowflakes, how dare you not endure? No. He sympathizes with us. He knows more fully just how much it hurts and how hard it is than you do. And it does not recoil against that, but is moved towards you. And he does so in the most loving and amazing way. He speaks favorably for us towards the Father. This is what Hebrews 7.15 says. He always lives to make intercession for them. And let, let, me, let, let me give you something to be thankful for by asking you a question. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you right now? Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus has never stopped praying for you? Did you know that that same high priest who walked into heaven, his ministry in heaven is to intercede for you by name? Forever. When you don't realize the moment in life that awaits you, that that bend of the river that's maybe going to show up in a month from now, you're not even aware of what's going to happen. Jesus is praying for you. About, what, 10 hours ago, we were all sleeping. Not one of us had a good or a bad thought come into our minds. Maybe we had good dreams or weird dreams, but no intentional thought. Jesus was praying for you. I'm 38 years old. 39 years ago, I wasn't born. Jesus was praying for me. There is never a moment in existence that the high priest in heaven, Jesus, the son of God, is not interceding for you. Now think about that. 
Think about what that means. You may have a picture of yourself. You may evaluate yourself as a really, really bad Christian, as a really bad person. You may be afflicted by the shame and guilt that you carry around based on things you've done or things that have been done to you. But picture this. As bad as you think you are, as bad as you may be, you could be worse. I mean, let's face it. Even bad people need to go eat. Even bad people need to take breaks from being bad. You're not sinning 24 hours a day, right? You rest, you sleep, you go to the bathroom. You actually disengage from sin. And there are moments of good work and there are moments of bad work. In other words, if you're to put two piles on the platform and grab your pile of sins you committed yesterday, and then you were to put on this pile prayers Jesus uttered for you yesterday, Which pile do you think would be bigger? Did you stop sinning yesterday for one second? Yeah, you probably did, right? You probably stopped sinning for a minute, an hour, maybe half the day. Maybe yesterday was a really good day. My my point is not every moment of your existence includes sin. But every moment of your existence includes the prayers of God for you. Can you be thankful for that? That you have a high priest who is your intercessor. And at the risk of sounding like a as seen on TV infomercial, but wait, there's more. He does more than intercede. He does more than walk into heaven, speak our name. He intercedes, but he does more than intercede. He advocates for us. 1 John 2, 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, what's the difference between an advocate and an intercessor? These are very closely related terms. They're not the same thing. An intercessor comes between two parties, right? So an, an, interpers- an intercessor wants to bring two parties that are at odds, and he wants to reconcile them. He comes in the middle. And he stands between one party and another and intercedes for one party to the other. Typically, it's how it happens. An advocate doesn't stand between two parties. An advocate stands next to one of the two parties. So Jesus not only stands in between us and the Father as our intercessor, Jesus stands next to us as we come to the Father. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful that Jesus knows your weaknesses? He knows what you've done. And yet he continues in his ministry as a a high priest for you. You ever been embarrassed by someone? You have that family member that you kind of want to keep private, you know? Maybe Thanksgiving was, was, was one of those moments where maybe you brought friends and family into your house and you're like, oh my gosh, they're going to meet my uncle or oh my gosh, they're going to meet, you know. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're the embarrassment. You know what I mean? <laughs> Are there aspects about 
people that you love that you find embarrassing? Come on. Raise your hand. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Aren't you grateful that Jesus isn't embarrassed about you? Aren't you grateful that he's not embarrassed by what you've done or what you are? He is your high priest. Not only does it intercede, Jesus does not make you look better to the Father. He doesn't put a veneer to try, try to euphemize, if, if, if that's even a word, trying to sell you to the Father. He comes next to you. He's not repulsed by you. He's not embarrassed by you. He doesn't recoil at the thought of what you've done. He sympathizes. He draws near to you. We have a high priest in heaven who, when asked, which of your disciples embarrass you? If you were to ask that question to Jesus, Jesus we, there's some of us better than others. You know, there's, there's some of us who are more put up than others. There's, there's, there's some of us who, 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 who make you look not as bad as others, right? I'll put it to you that way. Jesus, which one of us makes you kind of squirm when, 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 when we come into the room? So, so suppose there's a, a party in heaven and everyone's invited. This is after Jesus has returned. You know, we're, we're feasting as we do in heaven, as we're going to do in heaven. And, um, and uh, you get your invitation, you know, uh, party number 750,000 billion. And because uh, you're going to be in eternity for, for a long time, but right? eternity is a long time. So it's another party. And uh, every, everyone's, everyone's gathered and Jesus is at the head of the table and, um, and you come in or someone comes in or, or, or maybe you're trying to ask Jesus, which one of us is, you know, kind of like, you know, um, the, the two brothers asking, asking, hey, can, one, can I sit at one table? What do you think Jesus would say? What do you think he would say if he stacks us up and compares us to other people? I'll tell you what he said because he said it before. John six thirty seven. whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whomever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is nothing you have done or nothing that's been done to you that embarrasses, turns off, or make, makes Jesus uh, reject you. He is not repulsed by you. He is drawn towards you. That is something we can be thankful for. And finally, we are promised a throne of grace. We have access as a guaranteed promise, a throne of grace. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Christ, God has not given us access to his throne of mercy because we're weak. In Christ, God has not given us access to his throne of mercy because we are weak. Do not think of the throne of mercy as what you may feel when you see a homeless person asking for money. I'm not suggesting that what moves in your heart towards giving someone that is weak and in need is wrong. I'm saying that the throne of grace is deeper than that. Jesus is not primarily motivated by our weakness or our need. 
He is primarily motivated by his love. His movement towards his people is based on his character. His character is one of eternal graciousness and love and justice and mercy towards us. We can approach with confidence to the throne of grace and we will receive mercy and grace in time of need, not because our need is great, but because our Savior is gracious, because his love is great, because his desire to help us is great. Because he loves us more than we think our need is needful. I don't know if that made sense, but it made sense to me as it came out of my mouth. So come freely. Come with confidence. Come with boldness. Come with humility. Come recognizing that you are not going to be turned away at the door. There's no bouncer in heaven. Did you know that? There used to be one. Did you know that? When Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, what did God do? He placed an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. You couldn't get in. You could not get in. You're going to get cut in half. We have access to come before the Father. And there's no filter. There's no filter. There's no paperwork. There's no waiting. You have direct access to the throne of mercy whenever you want. At whatever moment, for whatever reason, because there's a God who loves you. So three things to be thankful for. Number one, the son of God is a great high priest. Number two, Jesus knows us well. And in spite of who we are, he is sympathetic towards us. Number three, we have access to the throne of grace as a guaranteed promise. Let's pray together. Father, what you have done for us is beyond what we can describe, beyond what we can appreciate, beyond what we deserve. But it is so beautiful and it's so rich. Lord, help us honor you by giving thanks, not out of some religious responsibility, O Lord, but as a result of hearts who have come to know what it means to have the Son of God love us, be moved in his heart towards us, and open up the blessings of heaven for us, Lord. Would you fill our minds with this this afternoon, Father? Would our hearts grow in thanksgiving, Lord, as what you have done is great and marvelous? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ronald. That was a uh, just a very fresh reminder of Jesus, and that's what we always need. Uh, what I love the point you made about Jesus being our advocate. Uh, I think a lot of times we. We treat Jesus as if he's making a sales pitch to the Father to accept us. But he's not a salesman. He's an advocate. 
And he doesn't point to us as the good we've done. He points to himself for the good that he has done and our trust in that. So I love the picture that I had in my mind. It was when Jesus is standing next to us. He's looking at the Father and he's saying, ours, ours, this one's ours. We're good. Look, we we spend more time, I think, uh, aware of our falling in the wind than we do about Jesus standing against the wind. And he stands against the wind for us. Draw your attention in our commission. Draw your attention to the word baptizing. Uh, baptizing, I think, is a twofold thing. One is the physical symbol of what's taken place inside. But listen, if we have been baptized into God, remember, it's the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, that's an experience. So what Ronald has done so well is invited us into this baptism again to experience the love of the Father, the love of the Son, the power of the Spirit. So we go and tell others about it. And show them. So be reminded of that as we, as we recite this together. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen.